0: Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value, but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Frank Veth. He is a surgeon, professor and the author of The Medical Jungle. Frank, thanks for joining me today.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Nick.
0: So this is a special pleasure for me. Um, you and I have, uh, through um, some of our mutual friends, uh, we've never actually met, but, um, you know, certainly our uh, courses and careers have intersected, so this is a real privilege for me, and I'm I'm excited to have you here. If I could, could I ask you just to set the stage? You've had a, a, a very illustrious career. Let's be clear, you've done some amazing things, but that all started, um, you know, many years ago. Could you help us by sharing a little bit of how you got to that point of being a vascular surgeon and the story up to uh, you know the early stages?
1: Well, so many things in life uh, are determined by luck, and I sort of fell into medicine. Uh, My mother was a nurse. uh, I had an uncle who was a dentist, and they uh, acquainted me with some of the rigors of general surgery at the time, and I thought it was probably much better than a legal career, which was what my father did, uh, because I didn't want to do paperwork in the evenings. Turned out that, that didn't happen at all like you know in academics one ends up doing more paperwork and writing and uh talking and and preparing talks than than i would have ever realized but i sort of fell into medicine by chance and i fell into surgery also by chance of uh, having uh, witnessed a uh, young man with a perforated ulcer uh as i was a medical student and came into the hospital we made the diagnosis very quickly. He went to the operating room and was fixed, and and that sort of appealed to me. And uh, I, I was not really particularly turned off by some of the intellectual aspects of of medicine and internal medicine, which was the other possible career. So I I fell into a surgical career and and liked it, and also had the good fortune to train at a couple of very good institutions and. Uh, meet some mentors that uh, guided me into a surgical career. And uh, things went from there, sort of largely by luck and happenstance. Uh, and I ended up as a medical scholar. And one of my friends, Mark Friedman, got a job in the Bronx at Montefiore Hospital, and he uh, enticed me to join him after a career in the army and some other things. And uh, because it was somewhat of a uh, lesser institution, I don't like to say third grade, second rate, but lesser in an indigent uh, community I uh, had opportunities there to uh, uh, develop in vascular surgery, which appealed to me a lot more than uh, other aspects of general surgery and uh, that seemed to work
0: out. So a uh, couple of things to highlight in there, and um, you know, one of the things I think luck always plays a part, but I also think that we make our own luck and making ourselves available for those opportunities when they arise. As you look back, prior to that Montefiore um, opportunity and the work that you've done there, that we're going to cover in a second. Was there anything that stood out to you that really sort of provided a a step that you think had it not happened, you might have taken a different course? It sort of provided some insight or perhaps experience uh, through that that you think was really, um, really important to the development of your career.
1: Well, I I always thought in my naive nature that if one worked hard, did what was right, that that would lead to success. As it turned out, uh, some of the blind, malign characteristics of human nature uh, enter the fray and, and hard work and, and competence doesn't always pay off. You run into jealousies and uh, other people's lust for power and stuff like that. And uh, so it was somewhat of a rude awakening because uh, I'd always thought that hard work and and uh, and trying to do a good job would be the secret to success, and obviously that's not always true.
0: So, in that regard, I think one of the things, and and I certainly got this as I read through the book, which was okay. So, I, I mean, I think that's true, and we uh, perhaps most, if not all of us, come to discover that that's you know part of the human nature and the course of life, but one of the things that you must have had to apply was the ability to sort of pick yourself up and say, "Okay, well, that's what's happening, but I'm not going to be beaten down by it. Is is that a fair assessment?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the, the idea of never giving up, because if you write a good paper or submit a good grant, typically it gets rejected. For probably for bad reasons or inappropriate reasons, First, but if you keep trying and trying and trying and and revising and not giving up, uh, very often you're rewarded with ultimate success. So the, the Winston Churchill aphorism of never, 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 never give up was something that uh, I guess did guide me. And, uh, and I tried to get that across to some of my younger colleagues and, and partners.
0: So... Uh, You you go through this sort of early training. It provided you, I think, some great um, opportunities, experience that you might not have had. And you arrive at an institution where, you you know, because of the nature of it, you got more opportunities. You're in vascular surgery, which I I, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's still not a specialty in its own right. It's a subspecialty.
1: That's very correct. Ironically, and with great disappointment, although it is a specialty, It is not recognized in the United States. It's still regarded as a subspecialty. And that, of course, is one of the chapters in the book where we uh, were very much involved in the leadership of trying to get vascular surgery recognized as a specialty, which it clearly is uh, and and fulfills all the necessary criteria for being such. Uh, It hasn't happened for some of the uh, noxious reasons that I mentioned that human nature and uh, the desire of other people to keep power and so forth uh, has prevented us from becoming a separate specialty with still many uh, disadvantages to not only to us, but to the patients we care for.
0: Right. So here you are, you're in at the time a subspecialty. We haven't seen the emergence of that to date, recognizing that, uh, as you rightly say, it is a specialty. It's just not recognized as such. But you now start down a journey doing some things that were really, I, I, I want to say, completely against the prevailing wisdom. And I use inverted quotes for that, that, um, you know, and, and a couple of things I'll pick off initially was, you know, lung transplantation was just not a thing. I mean, at the time, even heart transplantation was very new, but there was some uh, early successes. And then limb salvage, which, you know, as you look back and I recall this in my career that, you know, we would take a limb off for fear of losing the patient to infection. You turned that around. Tell us a little bit about that story.
1: Well, that 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 was sort of typical of what we were talking about. One of my thoughts in being an academic vascular surgeon and wanting to do something that was meaningful was to address problems which other people thought were either unsolvable or very difficult to solve. And that uh, those two areas, the lung transplantation and the limb salvage were two areas where uh, first they were not very popular because they were deemed impossible. And uh, there were many difficulties, particularly with the limb salvage, the patients aren't particularly glamorous. They're usually old sick people in the end stages of their life uh, that are faced with losing a limb, which is basically a disastrous complication, particularly for a sick old person. And uh, because we did not have a lot of patients when I went to Montefiore, who had the glamorous uh, diseases of vascular surgery, namely carotid disease and aortic aneurysm disease and uh, occlusive disease of the aorta and other vessels, we started to uh, attack an area where we had abundant patients all faced with loss of a limb and for which there was no really good treatment or no accepted good treatment. And and so we cautiously approached that problem uh, using some techniques which I was lucky enough to have learned from uh, doing AV fistula access work, uh, micro Semi-micro techniques on the small blood vessels. We found that, much to our surprise and delight, some of these unaccepted procedures worked. And because they worked for us, we began to do more of them, publish them. Uh, of course, we met we met with a lot of resistance, hostility, and and doubt, skepticism. You you couldn't be right. You couldn't do these things. They never worked for us. How can they work for you? And We we just persisted and uh, kept doing it. I trained people, my uh, trainees and partners to do it. And uh, we kept publishing it. And uh, it's now become uh, standard of care around the world.
0: So uh, thinking back to that time uh, and, you know, the pushback where, uh, you know, one of the, the fundamentals of science is repeatability. So you were able to achieve some of this limb salvage and uh capabilities others were saying they couldn't you're obviously facing you know what some would consider a wall a, 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 an insurmountable task what was it at the time that allowed you or helped you persist and keep pushing towards this goal which ultimately you've been proven a hundred percent right it's now standard of care standard of practice
1: well Basically, I was in an institution where we had a lot of indigent patients, and uh, I guess I got some support from the institution. I also had a lot of pushback because many of the patients would stay in the hospital a long time till we got their revascularized foot healed. And of course, that cost the institution money, which didn't make them too happy. But basically, we had uh, enough success that we could continue to. To do this, it was not a uh, particularly financially rewarding uh, area to be in, but it was personally very rewarding to see these people come in with a gangrenous foot and walk out of the hospital. Uh, whereas, if they'd had an amputation, they would be—that would be the end of their life. Because, unlike a young person who can be re- rehabilitated with a prosthesis, old people rarely walked when they they had a major amputation. So it so, was gratifying.
0: Right. So I, as as I pick out from that, it sounds very much like, you know, critical to that was actually the patience and the reward that you saw that helped continue to drive you to, to demonstrate that success to others.
1: Yeah. And, and people would come to visit us from, you know, far away. But we one other very fortunate thing that we had, which I can't claim credit for is we had unusually good arteriography. So whereas other people weren't seeing the still patent vessels in the lower leg or foot, we could visualize them and and do uh, reconstructive bypasses to those vessels, which much to our surprise worked.
0: So for those of you just joining, I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Today I'm talking to Dr. Frank Veith. He's a surgeon, professor, and author of The Medical Jungle. We were just talking about the innovations and the push uh, that uh, you had with both lung transplantation, art limb salvage, um, uh, the art of limb salvage, which you know it, it, at this point is now standards of care. We see this as sort of regular practice, but at the time was not perceived uh, as normal. But you didn't stop there. I mean, some people just stop there and say, "Wow, you know, I've achieved this, but you continued on. And at this point, you're a vascular surgeon. You you know, some of the primary challenges we see in that area is, you know, um, the the challenge of uh, repair of aneurysms, something that occurs again in that older population, um, significant sort of uh, pathology and morbidity and mortality. And you start down a track of doing this in a way that, at the time, was completely revolutionary. Tell us a little bit about that experience.
1: Well, I I always, first of all, our limb salvage patients were always sick and old. And uh, we, early on, back probably in the late 70s and 80s, we embraced a technique of endovascular treatment of occluded arteries which was popularized by, or really invented by an interventional radiologist named Charlie Dotter. And uh, uh, he devised the technique of angioplasty, that is endovascular approaches to occluded arteries, and then opening them with either a a tapered uh, catheter, or as later was developed with a balloon, so-called percutaneous balloon angioplasty. I was at a young age, I was president of the New York Cardiovascular Society. And I invited Charlie Dotter to speak at our our meeting. This was probably in the uh, late 70s or early 80s. And he he was sort of regarded as a crazy man. Uh, Certainly by all surgeons, this is not possible. It can't work. And he was known as Crazy Charlie. And he came, he gave the talk at our meeting. talking about the way the angioplasty worked like footprints in the snow to, to uh, reopen an occluded artery, uh, making the plaque like a footprint in the snow, which wasn't the way it worked at all. But everybody in the audience thought he was crazy. They were all surgeons. It was a surgical society. and But I thought maybe he had something here. And because our patients were so old and sick, I uh, asked our interventional radiologist Seymour Sprayreagan, to go out and watch this guy work and bring his techniques back so we could use them rather than doing these big horrendous operations on these old sick patients and he went out there and he came back and he started doing them and uh, I would sit in the angel suite with him watch the procedures and they worked and they worked much better than the big open abdominal aorto thermal bypasses so we started Embracing endovascular techniques. I became very good friends with a guy named Barry Katzen, who I also invited to speak. He's an interventional radiologist of world renowned at our New York Cardiovascular uh, Society meeting. And that launched him on his career. He talked about lysing clots uh, with uh, uh, streptokinase. Again, nobody believed him. It didn't work very well, but we became good friends. He invited me to his interventional radiology meetings, and I saw what the interventional radiologists were doing. And even though I had my doubts, I said, well, maybe these things can work for us. And I actually, at that meeting, I saw a presentation by a guy named Julio Pomez, the father of stents uh, for opening and keeping arteries open. And he presented a talk on the possibility of treating aneurysms endovascularly with a stent and a graft. And subsequently, a guy named Juan Perotti did the first endovascular aneurysm repair in Argentina. Nobody believed him. He was regarded as a pariah by all surgeons, spoiling this good open operation that we did. But we had a very sick patient that we couldn't operate on with a big threatening aneurysm. Uh, And we, Mike Marin and I said, what are we going to do with this patient? We can't operate on him. He's too sick. I said, let's go to Argentina and learn how to do this procedure that Juan Perotti was talking about and nobody believed. And so we got friendly with Perotti and made phone calls and uh, he didn't want us to come there because various reasons, but we induced him to come to the United States and do the first open uh, endovascular aneurysm repair with us at Montefiore uh, in 1992 by inviting him to our meeting so he could promote his technique. And it's a long story. Of course, it's been detailed in the book, but he ultimately came after much backing filling and adversity. We talked him into coming and got permission to use the the Palma's stent, a giant Palma's stent, which was necessary for us to make the graph. And that first case was dramatically successful. And uh, the guy, the patient lived the next day was sitting up in a chair reading Playboy uh, and his aneurysm was fixed. And uh, so we then, that's uh, I and Mike Marin, started a program where we made our own endovascular grafts, some for aneurysms of the aorta, some for other diseases. And unbelievably, they worked in in situations that were otherwise hopeless. So we thought we would present this work uh, at a major uh, meeting of young vascular surgery leaders. And I got permission to present it, although that was resisted because of various reasons. And we presented this work, which was dramatically successful. And nobody believed us. My friends, all these guys who were hotshot leaders, they said we were either lying or crazy. And, uh, but we kept Kept doing it, kept talking about it, uh, accumulated more experience, and I was fortunate enough at the time to be president of a couple of societies, one of them being the major SBS, and I advocated telling vascular surgeons that if they don't wake up and realize that this stuff was going to work, they were going to be out of a job. That was not well-received either. Uh, it was a talk on Charles Darwin and vascular surgery. And how we had to evolve as a species or we would become extinct. Uh, and uh, we were disbelieved by all the major uh, leaders in vascular surgery for about five to seven or eight years. And then gradually people started to realize that this stuff might work. And now it's become, of course, standard of care.
0: Yeah. So fast forward to today, and just, you know, for everybody listening's clarity, this is absolutely the standard of care you would essentially approach the majority of these kind of cases because minimal intervention. I mean, this is what we call keyhole surgery. And I know I'm uh, oversimplifying, but just for the benefits of the audience, this is, you, you know, minimally invasive, Um, And as you rightly see, I've seen it a number of times as well. It's truly astounding when you compare, you know, the traditional surgical repair of a triple A to the uh, repair done endovascularly. Patients, you know, long time in ICU, and as you said, up the following day and, you know, mobile and at this point probably discharged. So just incredible progress. As you think back to uh, the course of all of this, what do you think are the learning points that people should bring out of this? what What is it that we've got, and you've learned over this? I mean, you've had enormous experiences pushing back against lots of resistance. what 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 should we take away? Well,
1: go counter to human nature. Don't always accept uh, the standards of the day as being uh, being the truth and and challenge. Uh, current thinking and then if what you do works be persistent and keep at it don't give up and don't get upset when you get your papers rejected or your grants rejected uh, be persistent and be lucky
0: <laughs> yeah so I to be clear the the luck I agree with you there's there's components of that but you know it's it's being ready for that and being in the mindset that continues to be open to those opportunities. You know, you continue to this day. And I think, you know, one of the legacies that you leave is obviously the mentorship and some of the people that you've influenced over the course of your career and continue to influence. And not just that, but also the delivery of the VEETH symposium, which cleverly uses your name, but I think is actually stands for something within the oh, it's an acronym
1: it has nothing to do with me.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I'll believe you, but millions wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, what do you think? Uh, what, what do you think is the, the future as you look at the potential for all of this innovation that's now taking place? I mean, we seem to have accelerated. And and as I look back over the course of some of the things that you've managed to achieve, all of that seems pretty fast, but we seem to be going even faster. Where are we going now?
1: Uh, Well, we're going to end up using artificial intelligence, more uh, slicker computer technology to uh, image the body and the vascular tree without using radiation so one doesn't get uh, cancer from being overradiated, radiated uh, lose the hair on one's arm and so forth. Uh, so I, I think for vascular surgery, the sky's the limit because new technology is opening up all sorts of new challenges. And even though the endovascular techniques work very well, they also create a whole group of new problems that have to be solved. And some of the things happening today by my, younger colleagues and successors uh, are beyond my belief they can do things now that we never could have dreamed of doing and part of it's because of the uh, constructive relationship positive relationship between industry and, uh, and medicine and doctors which has been decried by a number of universities and politicians etc there have been some abuses but by and large the relationship between doctors and industry is a tremendous bold
0: to society and patients. So uh, unfortunately, as we do each and every week, we've run out of time. So just remains for me to thank you. Obviously, a a tremendous privilege, um, an opportunity for me um, to get to talk to you here a little bit about some of the history that you've managed to create and make for the benefit of medicine, vascular surgery and, you know, far beyond. Uh, Frank, thanks for joining me today.
1: Well, it's been a real pleasure and a privilege for me to to, uh, be with you. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for joining me today. Do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world? Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at DrNick1 on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution.